Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. On the show this week, the French presidential campaign kicks off. Sarkozy looks like the underdog who's going to have to pull off quite a comeback triumph if he's going to make it. And across the Atlantic, the Republican Party's search for a candidate to challenge Barack Obama is intensifying. The party is more divided, I think probably more disaffected and and less unified than, than it has been in living memory. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Sean Donnan. But first to Paris. With just months to go until presidential elections, the socialist candidate, François Hollande, is leading opinion polls, while President Nicolas Sarkozy's approval rating has slipped to just 32%. Could Mr. Sarkozy really be facing defeat? Joining me on the line from Paris is FT Bureau Chief Hugh Carnegie, and with me in the studio, Ben Hall, our Europe news editor. Hugh, why don't we start with you? What are we learning so far about Sarkozy and his campaign strategy? Well, he's uh, determined to show that he's the super active president who's going to keep pushing right to the end. We're in a crisis. The Eurozone problems have been looming over France uh, very heavily for months now. In a way, he has no choice. Uh, He can't escape that. And so he has to essentially present himself as the man who will steer the country through the crisis and who's not afraid to continue with a program of reforms. We're expecting a new package of of, uh, proposals from him over the weekend on things like the labor market here in France to make France more uh, competitive. Uh, So his strategy essentially is to continue to be the active president working hard to steer France through the crisis, despite the fact that he's uh, manifestly not very popular. Uh, He feels that his chance of winning is to essentially say, you can't afford to uh, change captain of the ship in the middle of the storm. Now, we had this rare bit of humility from uh, Mr. Sarkozy earlier this week when on the stop in French Guiana, uh, he raised the possibility that he might even lose this thing. Uh, What has been the reaction to that in France? It caused a stir. There's no doubt about that, because Sarkozy is not the kind of person that you expect to start speculating about defeat. He's a very determined guy. He's, uh, he's always on the front foot, and uh, he's always trying to project an image of somebody who's very engaged and not thinking in any way about reversing. So it was striking that in this off-the-record session with journalists that was then uh, made public, he, uh, when asked about what he would do if he lost the election, instead of choosing to say, well, I'm not going to lose the election, I'm going to win, he said, well, I'd give up politics and do something completely different. He may have been being just a little bit disingenuous to uh, just rally his troops a bit, who might be in a bit alarmed to think that he might be prepared to turn around and leave the field. So uh, exactly what his motivation was, a little bit hard to divine. But it did perhaps at least give an insight that, uh, in his mind, this election is definitely a tough one to crack. Sarkozy likes to destabilise his opponents by these little games, by suggesting he's not going to stand again or, you know, uh, he's not that interested in politics after all. But I think the trouble is it might have backfired a little bit this week because I think it really rattled his uh, some of his own supporters who are getting very frustrated uh, with the fact that he hasn't declared himself as a candidate and isn't, you know, hasn't launched his campaign, and they want him to come out fighting, 
and he's yet he he can't he's paralyzed with having to run the country which means that everybody's focusing on his record when what he really needs to do is concentrate on what he can offer for the next five years it certainly seems to me that's what people in his ump party want him to do now on the other side of of, of the aisle if you were leading in the polls right now is francois hollande the socialist candidate what are we learning about hollande so far there was this astonishing uh, speech that he made again at the beginning of the week in which he labeled the finance sector his true adversary what was that all about here well, first of all, I think that it's pretty clear that Hollande is, is growing in confidence. Uh, we'll see whether that's justified, but he's gained some kind of stature, I think, uh, recently. Uh, he got a lot of uh, self-confidence, I think, from the strongly supportive reaction he got to that speech. But you're right. If you look at the content of the speech, it was quite an appeal, if you like, to the left of his party. He had a real go at the banks, which he's continued to repeat through the week and again uh, today when he laid out his manifesto. Uh, and uh, he, in policy terms, he's getting down into lots of detail, which is interesting because that, of course, then opens him up to attack from the uh, party of Mr. Sarkozy uh, in terms of what he's proposing. There's facts and figures now that they can uh, start to try to unpick. They can attack him and say that his uh, lack of real rigorous uh, proposals on, for example, public spending may mean that he's not as... Uh, not as competent in terms of managing France's serious budget deficit problem as he's proposing. Uh, but Hollande, as I say, is assuming a certain amount of confidence now. He uh, is trying to present himself as, as he himself puts it, a normal president after the rather uh, fraught days of, of, of Mr. Sarkozy. So uh, Hollande balancing act, I think, between uh, on the one hand, trying to sort of rise above the fray, not get involved in the sort of personal mudslinging and present himself for, in another aura of a presidential statesman-like character. Uh, but at the same time, he's having to get down and uh, get into policies like, for example, talking about adding taxes to banks and splitting up the banks and so on. Can you just build on that a little bit, Hugh? What exactly is he proposing in terms of cracking down on the finance sector? Well, he's come up with a raft of proposals. One is that he wants to separate the banks between the uh, sort of commercial and retail banking and investment banking. Actually, when you talk to his people, it's clear that what they have in mind is more like a kind of Volcker rule in the United States, where what they'll do is just have some sort of separation between, if you like, the sort of more speculative proprietary trading aspects of the banks and their other mainstream businesses. So I don't think it's going to be a big structural reform, but it makes a makes a makes a big headline. But he is talking about, for example, banning. Uh, stock options, at least for companies that aren't new companies. He's talking about uh, cracking down on what he describes as speculative financial products, which don't have any link to the real economy. Uh, he's talking about putting some extra taxes on the banks. So there are a number of, of policy proposals there which are going to bear down on the financial sector. Now, Francois Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy are not the only two candidates in this field. Ben, introduce us to the rest of the field. Well, you have Francois Bayrou, who is the uh, leader of the Modem Party, uh, a perpetual sort of presidential candidate who then disappears without trace uh, after each contest. Um, but he competes in the centre ground. He takes votes from the, the centre left and the centre right. And he is bad news for Sarkozy in the sense that he will nibble away at his first round support. I mean, Sarkozy will obviously hope that he can try and 
take many of those votes in a second round that he can stand for economic credibility. Whereas, uh, you know, if you go with Hollande, it's a sort of, uh, you know, you're harking back to the old socialist past uh, and he can hope to appeal to sort of Beirut's voters. Um, how far Beirut will really get is, is difficult to tell. And I think the fact that Hollande is staking out very much a position on the centre ground himself will make it quite difficult for him. And then, Hugh, there is Marine Le Pen. Tell us about her. Marine Le Pen is the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was the founder of the National Front, the far-right party in France, who himself famously got through to the second round at the expense of the socialists in 2002 and caused a great shock in French politics. Uh, Marine Le Pen has softened the edges of the party. It's less overtly racist now, at least on the surface. She's presenting a very clear program which is based essentially on dismantling the euro and restoring to France all its sovereignty that's been given up to the European Union, throwing up protectionist borders to protect French industry, and a very populist uh, message on things like immigration. And she is getting support in the polls of up around the 20% mark and her best scores. And again, she is a definite threat on the right flank to Sarkozy in the first round. It's very difficult to predict how she will actually do because it's notoriously difficult for the pollsters to really measure how much support the National Front gets because of factors like people being a bit reluctant to tell pollsters that they are going to vote for her. Uh, however, she's undoubtedly a factor that has definitely got the UMP party of Mr. Sarkozy uh, worried. Now, this is an incredibly complicated uh, field. We've got a four, four main candidates. We've got two rounds of the election. It's a tough prediction to make. We'll hear from our U.S. political experts later in the show, uh, and they'll really have an easy call compared to you guys. But, Ben, what are we going to see April 22nd in the first round and come May 6th, the second round? Who is going to be the next president of France? <laughs> um, well, I think all will depend on how uh, the extent to which Sarkozy can demolish Hollande's economic credibility. I think recent proposal from Hollande would suggest he's going to play it quite safe. So it's going to be very difficult for Sarkozy, I would say, to beat Hollande. Hugh? If you look at the latest polls, they show uh, an interesting trend. There is uh, Hollande well in the lead in the first round, uh, Sarkozy hanging in there. So at the moment, it does look like it will be a runoff between the two, despite the gains from uh, Marine Le Pen and Francois Bayrou. But all the polls show that in a second round runoff between Hollande and Sarkozy, uh, Hollande wins by a margin, uh, a comfortable margin. That once it gets to the second round, he can upset the apple cart. But certainly at the moment, he looks like the underdog who's going to have to pull off quite a comeback triumph if he's going to make it. Hugh Carnegie in Gay Paris and Ben Hall here in the studio in a dim, dark London. Thank you very much. Let's move to the U.S. now, where the Republican Party's search for a presidential candidate is getting ever more colorful and tightening up. And Barack Obama has laid out his stall to voters in his final State of the Union address before the election. Joining me on the line from Washington is our chief U.S. commentator, Ed Luce, and from the Republican campaign trail in Jacksonville, Florida, our Washington bureau chief, Richard McGregor. Let's start with you, Richard. How is the race in Florida shaping up? Well, it, it seems to be definitely tightening, but I, I guess a better way of putting it is, is gyrating because, you know, Mitt Romney had been 22 points ahead. Suddenly, after the uh, South Carolina Gingrich tsunami, he dropped 10 points behind. And now, in some published polls uh, this morning, he, he's, you know, just about statistically speaking, even. Um, I just think it shows you, number one, how volatile uh, the Republican sort of electorate is, uh, firstly. And secondly, I think how volatile support for 
uh, Mr. Gingrich is. He can really enthuse people, but once the sort of uh, uh, Republican establishment, so-called, brings the tanks onto the lawn and starts uh, firing at him, uh, you know, his support does start to drop. And I think we're seeing that happening now, as happened in Iowa. We're also seeing some colorful proposals from him. Earlier this week, he uh, unveiled a proposal to have a permanent base on the moon uh, by the end of his second term. How is he, uh, There is this constant scent with, with Newt Gingrich that he is going to go off-piste at some point. Yeah, well, he's always been a space nut, um, uh, as well as being a nut on lots of other issues. The thing about uh, Newt is that, uh, you know, he's, he, he claims to be campaigning against uh, Barack Obama's socialism, but he is, of course, the classic big government conservative with grand ideas that can really only be financed through government. And the permanent mission on the moon, I don't know whether he'll have an apartment there, I think is one of those. Ed, what are we learning about the Republican Party through this? Well, the the old cliche is that um, uh, Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And, and that cliche doesn't really apply anymore. The, 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 if they were going to fall in line, then Romney would now be cruising for the nomination. Um, but the party is more divided, I think probably more disaffected and, and less unified than, than it has been in living memory. Uh, and, and that's bearing itself out in this sort of constant shift of falling in love with different candidates and then junking them and going through each and every one, pretty much with the partial exception of John Huntsman, and never embracing Romney. It's, it's really an extraordinarily un-Republican kind of primary. This is what we're used to with Democrats. And I think it's, it speaks to the fact that there isn't as strong a, a Republican establishment anymore. It doesn't have the kind of control over the party membership that it used to have, and that you do have a Tea Party that has affected a partial takeover. People talk about the decline of the Tea Party. I have to say, I think we're seeing it exhibit its full strength in this primary, um, because the Tea Party isn't in love with any of these candidates and and is, is driving this shift from one to the other. It's a very volatile party. Just build on that a little bit for me, Ed. Against the Tea Party, what are the other factions, or who is the Tea Party pushing against? Well, the Tea Party, if you look at the main Tea Party groups, um, free, free, Freedom Works, Americans for Prosperity, Tea Party, Patriots, etc. They haven't endorsed any candidate. Um, if you look at the Tea Party senators, the sort of big names on the national stage, um, with the exception of Rand Paul, who, of course, whose father is is running, none of them have endorsed. In South Carolina, Jim DeMint, um, a, a real icon of, of, of the right, the conservative movement. He didn't endorse Mike Lee of Kentucky, didn't endorse, uh, sorry, of Utah, didn't endorse. Um, Marco Rubio um, down in Florida um, still hasn't endorsed. So there isn't a candidate on whom anybody can really unify. Um, the, the, the establishment rather reluctantly would prefer Romney, but there's no obvious sort of fallback option at this stage. Richard, we've seen in, in, in the last week or so a lot of people raising again the prospect of another outsider coming into the race, whether it's uh, uh, Chris Christie uh, out, of, uh, out of New Jersey or another uh, governor or senator from out there. Uh, is that a real option? I just don't see how it's a real <clears throat> option. You've even got established candidates in the race, uh, like Mr. Gingrich, uh, who haven't been able to get on the ballots in some states uh, such as Virginia, or important states. And the idea a third person can simply come in here and uh, get an up-delegate, uh, force Mr. Romney out of the race, who's basically well-organized in every state, 
uh, you know, put uh, Ron Paul back in his box and fail for the nomination, uh, I think is really uh, not on the cards. I mean, much for the reasons that uh, Ed outlined, the party is very fractured and split, um, and there's no one single white knight, I think, who can come in and sweep all before him. I mean, people ask what's happened to the Tea Party, you know, for the last two, three weeks. Newt Gingrich is the Tea Party. He's the one, as a, a, a fantastic politician that he is, has been able to sort of, you know, tap into the anger, which is now pervasive in the Republican base. You know, can somebody just come in and take all that away? I, I really don't see it. Ed, can we look forward to the conventions later this year and the Republican convention, which I think is in Tampa this year? Uh, what's the worst-case scenario for the party? The worst-case scenario would be a brokered convention. Uh, you know, we've got another 47 state, well, 46 states after Florida next Tuesday to go through, uh, taking us right up to June. And if by then um, neither Romney nor Gingrich or a possible, I agree with Richard, unlikely uh, white knight candidate, has failed to get a majority of the delegates, then we'll have an old-fashioned style brokered convention in which essentially there's a negotiated candidate. This, of course, would be a dream scenario for the Democrats and for President Obama. But at that point, you would see all sorts of possibilities. Um, Ron Paul, you know, with his 10, 15 percent of the delegates, would command enormous leverage in such a scenario. There would be immense backlash by the Tea Party if the brokered convention produced a Mitt Romney. Um, uh, you know, a backroom deal, old style um, establishment fix. It would be very, very messy. And as I say, a, a kind of sort of turkeys voting for Thanksgiving scenario that would serve President Obama's purposes very well uh, has to be underlined, though, that that's still unlikely. Is there a historical precedent? Not really, not since we've had the modern primary calendar. Um, it was all uh, reformed after the 1968 Democratic um, Chicago Convention where Hubert Humphrey was kind of imposed. Hubert Humphrey didn't even bother running in the primaries because delegate counts in those days were only recommended. They didn't come with teeth. Um, and so uh, the sort of era of the big party bosses and the, the, like the Chicago machine fixing the candidate was done away with, and we haven't seen a broker convention since then. Now, Ed, as you say, uh, this all seems to be uh, playing in, in Obama's favor. Uh, Obama was on the stage this week, uh, was in Congress this week, addressing the Joint House in his State of the Union address, clearly pitched this one in the sort of the populist uh, way. Richard, what uh, do we take out of the State of the Union in terms of how Obama is going to pitch his campaign? Well, he's um, he's not running uh, too much on his record because the uh, you know after three years of weak economy, it, that that is not something he wants to highlight. The fact that he may have done a lot to sort of rescue the economy from a near depression is not much to run on either. I mean, the the idea you know it could have been worse is not a strong campaign slogan. So really, he's um, I think number one trying to rouse the base. Uh, the Democratic Party with these these ideas of uh, increasing taxes on the rich and the like, and I also think he's trying to tap into the you know popular anger on the right amongst the Tea Party types as well. I mean, there was a strong sort of uh, flavour of anti-globalisation in his message, which I found quite striking. So you know, this word populist is often over overused, but I sort of really think it fits uh, Mr. Obama's speech on Tuesday. Ed, how does that class war, that uh, pitching, uh, talking about raising taxes on the rich, how does that play in America? 
Um, it depends how it's couched. I mean, if you look at opinion polls, usually most of them find that a large or significant majority of Americans do support the very wealthy paying more in taxes. I think, though, that if there's any sort of hint of envy uh, that comes into it or any hint of, uh, sort of punitive taxes on success, then uh, th there's always a, a very thin line between supporting these measures and swinging into opposing them. And, and the Republicans are very, very proficient at turning such proposals into class warfare charges. Richard, it's a long way away, but let's flash forward to that first Tuesday in November. What's that result going to be? I would say Obama by a nose. Ed? I'd say Obama by a nose unless the Republican nominee is Gingrich, and then I'd say by a nose and a chin. All right. <laughs> A, a double chin, I'd say, in Gingrich's case. A double chin, I <laughs> Ed Luce, Richard McGregor, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Hugh Carnegie in Paris, Edward Luce in Washington, Richard McGregor in Florida, and Ben Hall in the studio. Till next week when Gideon Rockman should be back at the table. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 